Welcome to Cato Audio for August 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Republican Congressman and 2008 presidential candidate Ron Paul asks for more transparency at the Federal Reserve. Former Congressman Tom Campbell lays out a few options for California's budget crunch. Constitutional attorney Bruce Fine gives us a history of so-called fusion centers. And Cato President Ed Crane and Congressman Paul Ryan discuss the high stakes of fixing American health care. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. It seems like much of the news coming out of North Korea these days is just a rumor. Rumors of succession to Kim Jong-il's son, rumors of pancreatic cancer of Kim himself. There are things we do know about, such as missile tests and, and some other Uh, troubling rumblings uh, from North Korea. I'm joined now by two Cato Institute scholars, Doug Bandow, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and author of Foreign Follies, America's New Global Empire, and Ted Galen Carpenter, vice president for defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. And both gentlemen authored The Korean Conundrum, America's Troubled Relations with North and South Korea, published in 2004, a few years ago. They're talking about this issue and many years before that, actually. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be on. Now, first, walk us through, uh, give us a little bit of a history lesson here on uh, the United States relationship with North Korea. Doug Bandow? Well, this grows out of World War II. The Korean Peninsula was separated by the occupation of the North by the Soviet Union, the South by the United States. Two separate regimes rose up. North Korea started the Korean War back in 1950, a three-year bloody war. The U.S. has had no official diplomatic relations with North Korea. Since then, there's an armistice in place, never a permanent peace. So the U.S. has very little relationship with North Korea. It's always been a very difficult relationship. South Korea has actually done much better. The end of the Cold War opened up relations with both Russia and China. But uh, North Korea remains the most isolated country on earth, and as well as one of the most secretive which causes many of our problems. Ted Carpenter? What we've seen recently is an intensification of the problems with North Korea. We had a nuclear crisis back in 1993 and 94, where the North was clearly uh, processing plutonium from its Yongbyon reactor. The fear was that the North would be building nuclear weapons relatively shortly. That uh, crisis was uh, at least temporarily resolved by the so-called agreed framework in 1994, which froze North Korea's program. That crisis erupted again in the fall of 2002 when Assistant Secretary of State James Kelly, in a visit to Pyongyang, presented evidence from U.S. intelligence agencies indicating that the North had a parallel uranium enrichment program. Things rapidly unraveled after that with the North restarting its reactor at Yongbyon, kicking out international inspectors, again processing plutonium. And uh, since then, we've had a nuclear test in 2006. And then this spring, a rapid series of events, a test of a long-range ballistic missile, yet another nuclear test, an announced withdrawal from the Korean armistice, the one that uh, Uh, at least ended the fighting on the Korean Peninsula, the expulsion of international inspectors again from the Yongbyon reactor, and uh, just uh, an escalation of tensions over a very short period of time. Doug Bandow? Yeah, and this is being mixed with what appears to be greater instability within North Korea itself. Last August, the so-called dear leader had a stroke, disappeared from view, He's recently come back into view, but looks very ill. There are now rumors of pancreatic cancer. Apparently would like to have his youngest son take over for him. Very hard to do in the short term. And there's a lot of evidence of the military taking on an increasingly important role, including the internal shift of functions to the so-called National Defense Commission, which is Kim's only official position, but it's the dominant one within the government. So we're seeing this increased international provocativeness very little relationship with the U.S., and also internal instability. 
So it's a very, you know, it's a package that concerns all of us very much. And among that internal stability, the growth of the likelihood of the need of food aid by uh, many people within North Korea, they've taken a couple of journalists hostage over there. I've seen the documentary A Day in the Life of North Korea. Doug, you and I discussed this, but it's uh, just for to get a sense of what it's like to witness that country. It's very strange. A lot of forced smiles, very meager production facilities in many ways are displayed as signs of greatness and just abject poverty that, that exists in that country. You've been there. What did you experience? I was there in 1992. So I was there before the worst of the famine and much of the economic collapse. And even then it was very bad. I tell people it's a Potemkin country. You show up at an airport without airplanes. You're on roads without cars. You see streets without street signs. It's a very, very weird place, almost a, a parallel universe. At that point, I ran every day. And you know, so I ran all over the city, basically about a week. And what I found was nobody smiled at me. I mean, there are lots of people on the streets going to and from work, but you never, never made eye contact with me. I mean, this, you had this sense of, you know, of kind of utter desolation of a human spirit. And I mean, what you saw was no consumer goods, lots of big buildings. I mean, they like to point to big buildings as being evidence of their success. They have a bigger Arch of Triumph than the French. What they call the Juche Monument, its self-reliance, is taller, they said very proudly, than the Washington Monument. You know, they have this fancy hospital for infants with a marble interior in the entryway, but virtually no babies in it. I mean, the whole place has this otherworldly feel. And you can, I mean, the poverty was everywhere. There was a, an ox cart in Pyongyang itself. Pyongyang is the showcase for North Korea. And once you went outside of Pyongyang, the poverty was evident. Very little infrastructure, ox carts everywhere. I mean, it's, you know, it's a tragic country, what's been done to people. So not only is it kind of an international problem in terms of instability, but it's a human catastrophe in terms of the people who were forced to live under this regime. Ted Galen Carpenter. What we have with uh, North Korea is, of course, as Doug suggested, a domestic tragedy for that country. But we also have a severe international problem. When the current phase of the ongoing nuclear crisis with North Korea reemerged in 2002, there gradually developed a diplomatic process to try to solve this crisis that took the form of the six-party talks involving the participation not only of North Korea and the United States, but also Japan, South Korea, China, and Russia. The underlying assumption of the six-party talks was that while North Korea might play hardball in negotiations, ultimately there would emerge a settlement under which uh, the North would give up its quest for nuclear weapons in exchange for a variety of economic and diplomatic concessions from the other members of the six-party talks, primarily the United States. I always question that assumption. Uh, over the past several years, I've written a number of articles in which I suggested that we ought to at least consider the possibility that Kim Jong-il's regime was determined to have North Korea become a nuclear weapons power, that northern leaders never accepted the proposition that it was a choice of either trying to get a nuclear arsenal or getting integration into the international community but that the North's political elite assumed that it could have its cake and eat it too, that it could have a nuclear arsenal, and that would in fact increase Pyongyang's leverage to get these other concessions. The events of the past four months provide strong evidence that that in fact is the case. Doug? And I think that any kind of a leadership transition is going to enhance that strategy. To give up nuclear weapons, to give up on this program and give up the status that it's brought North Korea, the attention that it's brought North Korea, would require either the decision of a strong leader who can bring everyone in or it would require relative unanimity of a collective leadership. I doubt we have that. We have uh, the uh, dear leader who is obviously in failing health. Even if we don't have pancreatic cancer, he's still clearly not as robust as he was. He's had to be uh, making personnel decisions, moving his brother-in-law up, giving the military more authority. So I don't think we're going to see you know, Pyongyang in a position where leadership there is willing to give up nuclear weapons. So whatever they might have once been willing to do 
And I've long shared Ted's skepticism on this. I don't see that happening if we're talking about a transition, if the dear leader wants to get military support for his son to take over, if we're seeing the military with enhanced role in a collective leadership. All of these things suggest it's going to be status quo with North Korea moving ahead on provocation, building up its missile arsenal, perhaps conducting more nuclear tests, and making it much more difficult for the international community to respond. President Bush famously included North Korea in his Axis of Evil speech, a very public denouncement. The Obama administration has, at least the public face of the Obama administration, has been much quieter in dealing with North Korea. What are the differences in terms of their attempts to talk to, engage, or attempt to get some sort of footing in dealing with North Korea? Well, I think the most important you know, difference is that early on, the Bush administration didn't even want to talk to North Korea. You know, the president said he loathed uh, Kim Jong-il. You know, he you know, famously called it a member of the axis of evil. And it's certainly correct for the U.S. government to recognize this is an evil regime. I mean, one cannot negotiate with the North Koreans without recognizing that fact. But the U.S. has dealt with evil regimes in the past. I think the real difference is this administration, the new administration, is starting out wanting to negotiate with and talk to North Korea. What it's finding in a certain way is a brick wall on the other side, is that what North Korea is doing at this point, at least, is making it pretty clear it doesn't want to talk. My guess is that's part of the negotiating game. They like brinkmanship. But it also suggests they're going to ask for a price even to come back to negotiations. And then the ultimate problem is, is the negotiation merely an attempt to string us out or are they willing to try to negotiate for a solution? I think it's worth talking with them, pursuing both bilateral and multilateral channels. But it's important to recognize the character of the regime we're dealing with. You know, so, yes, talk to them, and that's an improvement with the current administration, but let's have no illusions of what we're dealing with. Ted? We have a lousy set of options here. Military force is far too reckless. I think even the most committed U.S. hawks realize that that's not uh, a reasonable strategy in this case, that that would trigger a general war on the Korean Peninsula and perhaps throughout East Asia. Economic sanctions haven't worked very well. They're not likely to work very well, particularly unless we can get China fully on board. China is the key player here. Beijing provides a large percentage of both food aid and energy aid to North Korea. China has a fair amount of leverage. Chinese leaders are wary of using that leverage. They're very much afraid that if they do, a number of bad things could happen. One is that North Korea, with the regime feeling it has nothing to lose, might just lash out and do something terribly rash. Another possibility from Beijing's perspective is great pressure on Kim's regime could cause the North Korean state to implode. And at that point, there's a refugee crisis, a number of other problems for China, And even if that didn't happen, even if there was a gradual unraveling of the North Korean state, then China faces the prospect of a united Korea allied with the United States and with the prospect of a continued U.S. military presence right on China's border. Given those factors, Beijing is very, very reluctant to do anything drastic with North Korea. I think if we're going to change that, we have to do two things. One is we have to convince the Chinese that we have gone the extra mile with North Korea. That means offering the North Koreans everything they say they want in exchange for giving up the nuclear program. I think that would at least smoke out the regime. Is this a serious negotiating strategy or is this just uh, blather? The other thing the U.S. has to do is to greatly increase the incentives to China to be much more proactive. And I think, among other things, that means giving China the assurance that if it takes action that brings down the North Korean state, either deliberately or inadvertently, we will phase out our troop presence and our alliance in South Korea so that China does not have to face a united Korea as a cat's paw of the United States. Has U.S. support for South Korea essentially served as a subsidy to the Chinese? I'm not sure how it would serve as a subsidy to the Chinese, but it has served as an enabling factor, allowing Beijing the easy excuse not to 
take more serious action with regard to a difficult and very dangerous, increasingly dangerous ally. Doug Mandel? In many ways, the current situation suits Beijing's interest. The U.S. has to come to Beijing as a supplicant, ask for assistance in dealing with North Korea. You know, North Korea remains a buffer state for China. You know, China can blame uh, you know, problems in the region on North Korea. Uh, you know, and indeed, even South Korea at this stage has a good relationship with China, but also comes to China a bit as a supplicant. So it's going to require really engaging China very seriously and convincing them. We're not going to be able to dictate to China. There's a tendency, John McCain and others essentially want us to simply tell China what to do and threaten them with unspecified consequences. That is not going to bring China to the negotiating table. And quite honestly, it's the best way to turn China hostile. We're concerned about Chinese military spending. We're worried about a Chinese role in the region in the future. If one wants to have a hostile relationship with China, the way you do it is by attempting to dictate to them their policy to North Korea and threatening them if they don't go along. It'd be an extraordinarily foolish policy for the United States to do. But I do believe there's an opportunity to try to bring China along. I think it requires, as Ted indicated, geopolitical assurances. We won't take advantage of them. I think it also requires assuring them that there'd be assistance forthcoming if there is an economic burden as a result of refugees or a collapse of the North. And that requires the U.S. working with South Korea and Japan as well as China. And quite honestly, it suggests that we should be talking a lot more in terms of go- having goals you know, that, uh, that are similar, uh, coincide, and also policies to take up if the worst happens in the North. Who would be in charge of what? How would we care for North Koreans? These are things to bring to the table that uh, if we're going to induce China to take a more active role, this needs to be a priority for the U.S. administration. There is one other action the U.S. should take, and that is to really present China with the possible consequences if Beijing does not stop North Korea from becoming a full-blown nuclear weapon state. And that is the greater danger of nuclear proliferation elsewhere in East Asia. I think it greatly increases the odds that South Korea and especially Japan may choose over the next several years to build nuclear arsenals. Conceivably, even Taiwan could make that decision. Beijing has to understand there are some severe negative consequences that lie out there if Chinese officials continue to take this rather lazadaisical attitude with regard to uh, the North Korean nuclear problem. All right, gentlemen, we'll have to leave it there. Ted Galen Carpenter, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and Doug Bandau, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute. Uh, They are co-authors of The Korean Conundrum, America's Troubled Relations with North and South Korea. You can order a copy of it at cato.org. The United States is facing some potentially devastating changes to its health care system. Cato Institute founder and President Ed Crane, opening Cato's June Conference on Health Care, framed the debate by laying out just how government mucked up American health care throughout the 20th century. I'm a libertarian, and I have strong views that it's inappropriate for the federal government to be involved in health care at all. But let me just briefly say four different things that concern me greatly about the current debate. The first deals with competition. The president insists that we need a public uh, insurance option to have competition in health care. There are 1,300 companies providing health care insurance in America, and it's one of the most competitive industries in the country. The idea that a subsidized public option, which the Lewin Group, as many people in this room know, suggests will effectively destroy private insurance is ludicrous. If you want to increase competition in healthcare, the best way to do it, in my view, is to get rid of the constraints on buying insurance from another state. If you had interstate competition, you would allow individuals to have insurance that reflects their insurance needs and also enhance freedom in the process. The second thing is the whole question of decoupling health insurance from employment. We all know why that came about. During World War II, wage and price controls led companies to compete for employees by offering fringe benefits, one of which was free health care. 
By the time the IRS, it dawned on them that that was in fact income and they wanted to tax it, it was so popular they couldn't do it. So we have this awkward and unnecessary and in my view inappropriate connection between employment and health care insurance. That needs to be changed and preferably through the portability of HSAs to increase the security of individuals in terms of controlling their own health care. Third, I'm very concerned about an article that appeared in the New York Times several weeks ago. And the headline was something due to the effect of doctor shortage undermines Obama plan. And I have to tell you, when I see the word shortage, I know it's a non-market phenomenon. Everything is scarce. Scarcity exists. Shortages exist because the government gets involved. And right now, there's a shortage of primary care doctors because their salaries are controlled to a large degree by the edicts of the federal government through Medicare. And that is a problem. And there are other aspects of the doctor shortage that worry me. It's not just that they're not making enough money. Although I must say, a bright young person looking at a career who says, you know, this is very hard work to become a doctor, and people don't become doctors just for money, but money and compensation and taking care of your family is a consideration. When you see the government is getting more and more in control of health care, it's a factor. And the other factor is the bureaucracy. How many of us know doctors who have said, you know, the paperwork is ridiculous. I didn't sign up for this. So the bureaucratization of healthcare is a concern in terms of having enough doctors to provide quality health care. And finally, I'd say that uh, I'm concerned about President Obama's confidence that he is going to reduce health care costs through his program, despite all the massive increases in spending that he's proposing. I don't doubt that the president's sincere. I mean, I could, because he did say during his campaign that there would be no new spending under an Obama administration, and that seems not to have been the case. But I think he is sincere about health care cutting spending. But to me, it just reeks of rationing, and that would be the worst of all possible worlds. Police departments across the country are starting to create networks of databases called fusion centers in an effort to detect and prevent acts of terrorism. Constitutional attorney Bruce Fine believes that fusion centers should be dismantled. Fine believes they pose a grave threat to liberty. He spoke at the Cato Institute's Hayek Auditorium in June. It is the history of governments, especially after crises, to inflate danger and quickly have investigations for law enforcement turn into investigations of dissidents. I remember after Pearl Harbor, uh, there was Fusion Center out on the West Coast, and they collected all sorts of information how the Japanese Americans had undiluted racial strains that tied them to Emperor Hirohito. And based upon that fusion collection of information, five months after Pearl Harbor, although there had not been a single instance of Japanese-American sabotage, we had the concentration camps. We had the concentration camps without a single iota of any criminal activity. But, hey, this is intelligence collection and we're trying to prevent any other Pearl Harbor. And people then, well, there's going to be another Pearl Harbor. We have to stick those Japanese-Americans in concentration camps. They're signaling submarines. They're signaling pirates to drop bombs. And of course, all of that was wrong. And it took the 1988 Civil Liberties Act to finally rectify the wrong, pronounce it a travesty of the Constitution, and pay $20,000 to each of the victims. Now, in more current times, you may recall the Vietnam War era. And there was called the Army Spying Program that Senator Sam Irvin held hearings about. The Army was initially tasked to gather intelligence on those who might attack military installations. But it soon ended up that they were infiltrating every single anti-war movement. So that the number that was spied on for political reasons dwarfed the number that had any conceivable action that could be brigaded with any criminal activity. And that is the nature of government collection of intelligence. It's said that to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. To a spy, everything looks like a saboteur. And let me give you one example of that. And I think we need to give real life and blood examples to give a sense of what are the human impulses that lead to these abuses. In 1969, President Nixon, Henry Kissinger, and others had decided on secret bombing of Cambodia. 
They didn't want to embarrass Prince Sihanouk. And so they were going to send our bombs into Cambodia. They were trying to get North Vietnamese sanctuaries there. And our pilots were instructed to file false reports as to where they're actually delivering their munitions. And there was a leak to the press, Henry Beecher of the New York Times. He published the fact that there was this bombing in Cambodia in violation of what at least the public policy of the United States was. So in the aftermath of that disclosure, President Nixon and Henry Kissinger goes to J. Edgar Hoover and they get a list of people who are going to find out who that scoundrel was who leaked this information. They identified 17. These were people on the National Security Council staff. It included people like Secretary of Defense Melvin Laird and others. The FBI then puts wiretaps. They surveil these individuals, 17, for over two and a half years. They come back with a report and say, we haven't been able to find anything that suggests any of our targets is the culprit. We gathered information on their sex lives, their credit lives, their girlfriends, their vacation plans, or whatever. And Henry Kissinger looks at the report and he responds, we must continue to surveil them so we give them the opportunity to establish a pattern of innocence. So then it continued, right? That is the mentality here. We are all guilty until you establish your innocence. Now, if a fusion center was nothing more than gathering information that was collected because it bore a nexus to a crime, we might as well just hire Google and say, hey, just get your databases and have a Google that works more efficiently with keywords. The real menace of the fusion centers is they arose when? Right after 9-11. Well, did anyone think that it was bad to share information prior to 9-11? Of course not. We know that this was calculated to generate a fear. We're going to catch the next Osama bin Laden out on the street. And we're going to try to get a collection of information that would enable us to have a profiles. That's why you have data mining that says, oh, this one looks like a terrorist. And of course, with the money there, the police says, all right, this is what our job is to collect information. No one gets rewarded in law enforcement for not collecting information. And you ask, well, what are the results of the fusion centers? Notice that there hasn't been a citation to a single terrorist incident that has been blocked because of the collection of this information, this sharing. And that was also true, and I testified at the fusion centers throughout the nation. Not even one. Now, consider that effectiveness when you examine what might be alternate uses of law enforcement that has to be limited. Annually, there's something like 17 to 20,000 murders in the United States annually. And you know what the clearance rate is? 61%. Clearance rate means that an arrest is made, not a conviction, an arrest is made for those homicides. 39%, there's not even an arrest made. So those are crimes that have actually commit, been committed that we could be utilizing these resources for, especially when the return on investment looks like it's close to zero. A little bit better than Bernie Madoff, but not a whole lot, right? A little bit better. So why are we doing this? Where's the person, he's going to stand up and he's going to tell you, these are the earmarks that we look for in these fusion centers and we see this piece of information, we know that's an earmark of a terrorist. He can't say that because we don't know. If you asked, what was the earmark? Why didn't we take this fellow who's over at the Holocaust Museum committing the murder the next day? The fact is that we don't have that knowledge. We don't want necessarily to have every conceivable knowledge about every individual, including their genetic makeup, because that would be a police state. You need to take some risks to have a free society. That is essential. That is essential. You can have the Stasi and you can go to some countries that are communists and tyrannies. They know everything about everybody. And they have no freedom whatsoever. Ron Paul has started, or perhaps revived, a broad skepticism of the Federal Reserve. The Republican congressman from Texas and 2008 presidential candidate wants the Federal Reserve to be more transparent, not just with its books, but with its policies. The Fed, he argues, creates financial bubbles with scant oversight from Congress. The 70s were hectic, and there was a cry even at that time to know more about the Federal Reserve. And even that decade was not the first time the people through their congressmen were speaking out and wanted more openness about what the Federal Reserve was doing. Early on, even from 1913 on, there was always somebody talking about it. And interestingly enough, uh, a lot of that sentiment originated in Texas. There, anybody remember Wright Patman? He came from a populist viewpoint. He wanted to know more about how 
how Wall Street was being taken care of by the Federal Reserve, and he wanted the books open. And lo and behold, uh, Henry Gonzalez advocated the same thing. But they came not from a free market perspective, but a populist perspective, but at least they were advocating more openness. In 1978, there was a change in the law. It was a, a law that uh, we're dealing with today, and the law said that uh, the Federal Reserve now can be audited. And you think, well, that's fine and dandy. But interestingly enough, and uh, this is not unusual for Congress, they said, sure, you can be audited except for A, B, C, and D. And of course, A, B, C, and D are all the important things that the Federal Reserve does, whether it has to do with FOMC meetings, whether it has to do with international agreements, deals that they make with other central banks, uh, the international financial organizations, all that is to uh, be kept secret. And uh, so it was more or less exempt from uh, access to Freedom of Information Act. And therefore, really, we don't know a whole lot about what goes on behind the scenes at the Federal Reserve. But conditions have changed dramatically, if you haven't noticed, in this past year. And uh, although I've been talking about it for decades and arguing that we had a financial system that was very friable, very vulnerable, and it was the Fed that was creating the bubbles. And therefore, we should be looking into it and preventing these problems rather than waiting for cataclysmic financial crisis to hit. But, uh, and there were more than a few talking about that. But nevertheless, Congress and others were receiving too much benefit by a secretive Federal Reserve system that created money out of thin air and uh, was able to finance big government. So there were two groups over in the Hill that loved this setup. The one group, the conservatives, they loved it because you could finance war without being responsible. And the left liked it because you could finance welfare without direct taxation. It was the indirect taxation through inflation, the looting of the money supply that financed uh, big government. And uh, the best answer I have about defending my bill is asking a question, why not? I mean, why in the world should this much power be given to a Federal Reserve that has the authority to create a trillion dollars secretly? And Congress says nothing. I mean, why not? I mean, it just makes so much sense. So the sentiment has changed. It wasn't because all of a sudden the people woke up and decided the Federal Reserve indeed needed to be audited and we needed to know more about the Federal Reserve. It had to do with the TARP funds. It was 700 billions. It's sort of like uh, what they do after the emergency, like 9-11, well, we need a Patriot Act. If you don't vote for the Patriot Act, you're not patriotic. And they rush that through in a couple weeks and nobody gets to read it, but the people want action. So so uh, when the crisis hit, TARP funds were passed, $700 billion. There's still a bunch of it floating around. But all of a sudden, some of those funds got into the hands of uh, unsavory characters, like uh, people who ruined their companies. And they ended up getting hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in bonuses coming from the American taxpayer. People say, what is going on? And they sent a strong message out to Congress. We want to know what's happening. We want transparency. Let's find out what's happening. But then it became known to so many people at the grassroots level that the Federal Reserve is very much involved. They don't quite understand how the Federal Reserve created our problems, but they understand how the Federal Reserve has been very much involved. So though I have a different motivation for transparency overall because of the monetary system and, and what's been going on for years, right now the motivation is to know what kind of shenanigans the Federal Reserve has been up to and how they've been wheeling and dealing and bailing out there, friends. Congress deals in hundreds of billions of dollars. The Federal Reserve deals in trillions. We don't know exactly how much line of credit, guarantees, and direct loans that they have made and promised. It's estimated it could be three or four trillion dollars in the past year, but we don't know exactly. So the real necessity is for us to find out, and then we deal with the aftermath. The bill is mainly to open up the books and find out what's going on. It does not deal with monetary policy. It does not deal with regulatory policy. It's mainly for opening up the books. So it's less uh, confrontational for those who want to design regulations and deal with monetary policy. And I think that's why we're getting such bipartisan support. The support is very strong, but it is a reflection not of my ability to go around and twist arms because I have no clout whatsoever over in the Congress. But there are a few spammers out there that are interested in 
in what I've been doing, and they're letting their congressmen know. And for that reason, there's a strong move on, and there's a lot of legislative consequences going on on where this goes and when we have hearings and, and whether it gets added on in the Senate. And I don't think we have enough time to go into all those details. But one thing for sure is it's never going to be the same again. Never. Because if tomorrow, if they come in and all the members of Congress, they remove their names and it changes and there's no transparency, all we have to say is, what do they have to hide? And for once, I think it's the first time the Federal Reserve has hired a lobbyist to lobby of members of Congress against this bill. And guess where the lobbyist came from? She's a hangover from Enron. She lobbied for Enron. So that's very appropriate. She'll know the ropes and she'll recognize a Ponzi scheme. And, and uh, hopefully, unfortunately, she'll probably be wanting to protect it. Anyway, we are very pleased with it. And uh, the thrust of the bill is just openness to find out what's going on. And of course, my ultimate goal will be that once you find out exactly what the Federal Reserve has been up to, and the conclusion being that it's the Federal Reserve that creates financial bubbles. And of course, Congress adds a lot of problems to that, but that's the key to it. And once that is known, and once you see the deterioration of the dollar, which will come, you can't double the money supply in six months and not have some consequences to it. That is when we will have true monetary reform, and that's when we'll have a lot more fun. California's budget is a mess, and governors around the country with similar, if less pronounced, budget problems will be watching California closely. So what to do? Former Republican Congressman Tom Campbell has a few novel ideas, like spend no more than you took in last year. He outlined that idea and others at a Cato Institute City Seminar in Santa Barbara this June. The governor gave a speech yesterday in which he announced, I believe accurately, that we are going to run out of money at the um, middle of July. So the state will have to issue revenue anticipation warrants, which is a way that you do short-term borrowing. The difficulty is Wall Street will not buy revenue anticipation warrants from the state of California without being convinced that there is revenue to anticipate. <laughs> Dang. How does that free market work? So the first proposal is, don't worry, President Obama will save us. I've heard this with uh, increasing frequency, that there will be an opportunity for the federal government to do for California what the federal government did for the city of New York in their crisis in the 70s. You might remember President Ford initially was opposed to it, leading to that famous New York Post, I think it was, or Daily News, Daily News headline, Ford to New York Drop Dead. Eventually, a compromise was worked out. A control board was established. The Municipal Assistance Corporation, MAC, issued bonds in the city of New York, guaranteed by the federal government. I don't consider this likely, although I'm hearing it more and more, because President Obama would have to explain to the other 49 states why California is getting a special deal. I wish to share with you a secret very, very, very few people know. As a congressman, I discovered this. California is not universally loved. <laughs> it surprised me, too. I, I couldn't believe it. And you're going to have a substantial number of members of the House standing up and saying, what in heaven's name are you doing bailing out a state that couldn't handle its own finances, that for years and years spent more than it should have? And politically, although I'm not trying to be unfair to President Obama, politically, I don't think there's a lot of doubt about his carrying the state of California. So I don't particularly see compelling political reason. We'll see. And for Speaker Pelosi, she would be immediately accused of favoring her home state. Uh, I think she'd probably be nervous about doing so. Second possible solution, we pass another budget. See, right in February, we passed a budget that was for last year and this. The good side was we thought we had had a balance. The bad side is because you can only exercise the line item veto at the time when you pass the budget, the governor no longer has the line item veto. You can only exercise the line item veto at the time the budget passes. And you say, this goes out, this goes out, this goes out. But because Governor Schwarzenegger agreed with the legislature to a two-year budget, it's gone. So second possible solution is that the 
legislature and the governor agreed to repeal the previous budget, pass a new one, which has a $28 billion item in it called expected revenue. Let me now share with you the second insider secret that I learned, in this case from being a state senator. The Constitution of California does not require us to balance a budget. It requires the legislature to say that we've balanced the budget. There is no neutral validator, okay? There's no neutral validator, neither the controller, the legislative analyst. As a result, if the legislature wants to put in 28 billion expected revenue, they can do so, in which case the governor's line item veto power revives, and they kick it to Governor Schwarzenegger, who's termed out, and they give him the problem. That's option number two. And then he could go about cutting where he thinks it's appropriate to get us down 28 billion, that difference, or the 8 billion addition to what he's already proposed. Third and last is probably most likely, and that's stalemate. In keeping with the depressing nature of my entire remarks this afternoon, I will conclude with what is both the worst and the most likely outcome. And that is that the legislature and the governor are unable to work something out. The Constitution of the United States, Article 1, Section 10, prohibits a state from impairing the obligation of contract. So the state cannot default. Cities can. Municipal units of government can, Washington Power did several years ago, but the state cannot default. Accordingly, you have vendors who in good faith have sold things to the state and they're waiting for their money. And you have everybody who has been given an appropriation in the February budget that I referred to, unless they redo it, who will be able to go to federal court and argue that they are having their civil rights violated because they're not being, receiving payment in accordance with the obligation of contract. The matter then gets before a federal judge. And a federal judge will line up the assets of the state of California available for sale and proceed to sell them to satisfy the obligations. That, as I say, is the most depressing and also the most likely of the outcomes because it follows from stalemate. I'll conclude by saying that what's needed is governance, people with a long-term view. I think our state has suffered from a very short-term view. I think that some of our great statesmen and women who could have been of value are no longer in government. I'm troubled by that. And I believe also we're plagued by an excess of partisanship. I have not gone overboard today. I hope you observe that. I recognize fault on all sides. Governor Schwarzenegger and Governor Davis have both been in office during the times that I've described. But it's long past time in our state to avoid demonizing. We've got to find some common ground, and it's going to be when both sides do what they said they'd never do in order to restore the faith that the markets ought to have as well as the people of California ought to have in the Golden State, in the state with the greatest promise, the state that we all believe still has its best days ahead of it. The keynote speaker at Cato's June Healthcare Conference, Wisconsin Congressman Paul Ryan, believes that healthcare reform should be based on expanding choice and competition. Instead of increasing government control of healthcare, Ryan says Congress should be working to free Americans from the artificial constraints of our already half-socialized healthcare system. The president and the Democrats are giving the American people a false choice. The president was in Green Bay just last week with this town hall meeting, watched it intently. And the choice they're saying is, either you stick with this status quo, and gosh, that's so bad, or you take our plan. It is either this public plan option with all of its bells and whistles and all of its promises cloaked in the rhetoric of, if you like what you've got, you can keep it. We just want more choice and competition. We just want to keep those insurance companies honest. Or the status quo. There's nothing out there. No one has proposed another thing at all. That's simply not the case. And that is not the necessary choice that are confronting the American people. There are other things to do and other ways to fix this problem. But first, let me just touch off of what Ed did, which is if we do go down this path of what we call the public policy option, the public choice option, the public plan option, that inevitably, mathematically, actuarially 
becomes the government-run monopoly. I won't go into all of the details. Just go to Lewin. Talk to the actuaries. What happens is when the government is put in this position to compete against the private sector, the government is both the referee and the player in the same game. It's kind of like my seven-year-old daughter's lemonade stand competing against McDonald's. It's a stacked deck. The private sector cannot compete with that. The private sector has to pay taxes. They have to account for their employment and their benefits of their employees. The private sector can't put dictates into the provider network on what they're going to pay. And so when you take a look at the fact that we're saying this public plan option will base its payments off of Medicare with maybe some modest increase, keep in mind that Medicare underpays providers 20 to 30 percent to begin with. So it is simply a question of when, not if. If a public plan option is set in place, it completely displaces the private sector. Now, the one thing about the status quo that's better than this vision is you can fire your insurance company. If the only insurance company you have is the government, you can't fire it. And so we believe that we have to go to the American people with a better way forward. More to the point, the next shoe that's going to drop in this debate is what I call the CBO shoe, the Congressional Budget Office. And we're, I serve as ranking on budget, so we talk to CBO quite constantly, and they're really putting an earnest effort into trying to really honestly score these bills. Sections A through D in Title I of the Kennedy bill cost a trillion dollars. And that trillion dollars buys them insurance from 16 million people. You factor that out, that's about $62,500 per person to insure them through the government system over 10 years. They're also telling us is tens of millions of people will lose their private health insurance and go into the government plan. And that's just the beginning of the score of a piece of one title of that bill. HSI, a private actuarial firm, has scored the Kennedy bill as costing $4 trillion over just 10 years. So what we're on the doorstep of doing here is creating a brand new entitlement that's going to rival the likes of Medicare. And no matter what kind of what we call pay-for packages cobbled together to quote-unquote pay for this in the first 10 years, there is no way, based on the current discussion, the current legislation we're seeing, it's ever going to match the actual cost of this new program. So what I'm saying is we are building into the system. We are creating a new entitlement that will grow out and become a new unfunded liability piled on top of the other unfunded liabilities we have, which according to the GAO, a conservative estimate, already ranks at $62 trillion. And so this, to me, is a real huge problem. It is accelerating that tipping point in America where more people are dependent upon the government for their livelihood than they are upon themselves. We already have a little over 40% of Americans who we call negative taxpayers. That's ways and means language, which means people who receive payments in, from the government in excess of their income and payroll taxes. You put everybody up to a system that is a government-run health care, where that is where they get their health care from the government, and I fear you're going to reach this tipping point after which we have become a social welfare state, not unlike what we have in Europe. And what happens when society turns into that is you lose sight of liberty, you lose concern about liberty, and you're more concerned about security, economic security and other forms of security. And what happens when you become a social welfare state is society stagnates, standards of living go down, creativity, innovation, achievement, production, risk, those things wash away, and you have high unemployment. We don't want to go down that path. So healthcare, this issue is so much more than just do you have insurance? Do you have access to medical care? It is more than that issue. It is a moral issue. It is an issue about what is the role of the federal government in this, the 21st century? Which pathway and which trajectory is America going to go down? Are we going to stick with the American ideal of equalizing opportunity, of protecting our individual natural rights, or are we going to replace that vision and stick with a new vision of a European social welfare state, where the goal of government is more to equalize the results of people's lives rather than to equalize people's access to opportunity. Let's get to healthcare. We believe you can fix this problem, not by pushing the market out, but by bringing the market in. And one of the reasons why healthcare is not doing so well right now, meaning one of the reasons why health inflation is so high, one of the reasons why there are so many distortions in healthcare, one of the reasons why millions of Americans don't have access to affordable health insurance is because we've displaced those basic fundamental tenets of a free market. What are those tenets? Number one, 
transparency on price, transparency on quality, and an incentive to act on those things. You don't know what things cost. You don't know who's good and who's bad. And even if you knew such things, be forced by your insurance company or HMO or the government on where and who you got to go to to get your care. So we don't want to pick a model which says the government will ultimately be the single payer. And it is right. Under that model, you can contain costs. I talk to Peter Orzek about this stuff all the time. We know the president is sincere in saying his goal is to bend the curve and reduce costs in the long run over these entitlements and throughout health care. The only way one can do that on their plan is to ration care. The Institute of Comparative Effectiveness, this new bureaucracy created in the stimulus package, is the bureaucracy through which you actually end up rationing care, telling providers, doctors and physicians, that we enlightened bureaucrats will tell you how best to achieve efficiencies, how best to deliver care in America, but the only way to quantifiably lower costs, get the $38 trillion unfunded liability in Medicare to go away, is to limit people's access to health care. That's not America. That's not who we are. It offends our sense of individual rights, of freedom, liberty, and choice. And so can you fix this problem without going down that path? My answer is yes. And that is exactly what Congressman Devin Nunes, Senator Richard Burr, and Tom Coburn and I are attempting to do by putting out this Patient's Choice Act. Patient's Choice Act, I will give you, I won't go into the great details of it. I'd be happy to answer that in questions because I want to be mindful of your time. It does a number of things. Number one, let's recognize this tax distortion that exists. The tax distortion, as Ed discussed, is what helped give rise to this third-party payment system. It's what helped give rise to this system that sort of took the individual out of the game, that took the consumer out of the game. And we want to equalize the tax treatment so we get the individual back in the game. We want the individual to be at least as powerful as these other systems we have in healthcare. And so we're not saying, like some Democrats are saying, tax healthcare benefits and send the money to the government so we can build a new system and, and have new mandates and a new public plan option. We're saying, let's equalize the tax treatment. Let's take this tax benefit and delink it from the job and reattach it to the worker so that everybody, regardless of how you get your health insurance, gets this tax benefit. Now, the way we do it, different than every other bill that has tried to do this, is the tax benefits, the exclusion that individuals get, goes back to the taxpayer. We do not use that exclusion money to pay for non-taxpayers, such as refundable tax credits. So the tax money they get right now by having deductibility if they have employer-sponsored health insurance goes to them in the form of a tax credit. $5,700 for families, $2,300 for individuals. The numbers we are looking at right now internally show us that that's on average an $1,100 tax cut for families. This will be, for the vast, vast majority of Americans, a big tax cut. More to the point, you keep this benefit regardless of what happens to you. You keep your job, you change your job, you lose your job, you go work for yourself, the tax benefit stays with you, it's portable. For the refundable population, we do entitlement reform. We come up with savings, we reduce spending, and we use that spending reduction to pay for the fact that these tax credits are also advanceable and refundable. So people who do not have tax liabilities also have these kinds of tax credits. And what we do in entitlement reform are a couple of things. Number one, we say that let's not continue to segregate poor people from the rest of society when it comes to health care. Let's not have those Medicaid patients come into the clinic and the doctor's office and the hospital with poor persons stamped to their forehead where they're pushed back to the side of the line. You got to remember, and I don't know if where each of you come from, but where I come from, most doctors won't take Medicaid patients. It underpays them. They don't want it. And so you already have rationing occurring. They're already getting, in many instances, second-class health care. So we're saying integrate them in with everybody else. Voucher out Medicaid, a cash benefit for Medicaid families, $5,000 on a card to go in addition to this tax credit. So a Medicaid family under the poverty line, about $11,000, $10,700 to be specific. And then for people up to double the poverty line, that cash benefit phases from $5,000 down to $2,500 and integrate them into the system. Now, insurance. I'll go quickly over to this. By the way, these Medicaid reforms save about a trillion dollars, and that helps us pay for the kinds of things that we're doing to make sure that the money that go to non-taxpayers come from spending savings. The money that goes to the taxpayers comes from the money that taxpayers were getting under the exclusion. This bill is revenue neutral, tax neutral. That's very important. You can fix these problems. You can have universal access to affordable health insurance in America, even for people with pre-existing conditions, without having the government take the thing over, without new taxes, without new spending. 
And that's exactly what we're proposing. On insurance, we're suggesting to set up state-based exchanges. These exchanges are voluntary from around. Voluntary for the individual to participate, voluntary for the insurance companies to participate in them, voluntary for the states to set them up. We have incentives for the states to set them up so that people can go and have basically like e-health insurance in each state or in state uh, regional cooperatives if they want to. States can join together to form these exchanges. So people can go into the individual market and see on an apples-to-apples basis what kind of health insurance they want, compare and contrast plans. These things we're saying in exchanges, you have to have a system, a mechanism, so that the uninsurable people who had breast cancer eight years ago or had prostate cancer can also get affordable health insurance. Risk adjustment, the tool we use in this, we're also encouraging states if they want to do risk pools or reinsurance, they can choose to do that as well. The point also is we want to have a basic benefit so that you can give individuals access to affordable health insurance like large multi-state corporations do through ERISA. So each of these exchanges have to have at least a minimum kind of a benefit healthcare plan without the bells and whistles. A Blue Cross standard option, it achieves the same thing you seek to achieve with interstate shopping, but does it another way, which we believe is easier to pass through Congress. I'm a huge fan of interstate shopping rights for insurance. It's in every other one of my healthcare bills. But we know from doing this in Congress that there's no way we'll get that passed. So we're achieving it a different way, which is the purpose of having an interstate shopping right is if you're stuck in New Jersey with all of these heavy mandates, you want to buy an Iowa or a Wisconsin-regulated plan, which has just the basics and is much more affordable. Well, why don't we have these state exchanges where that Iowa and Wisconsin basic kind of plan is available in New Jersey? That's one of the mechanisms we put together in these exchanges. So we give individuals access to more affordable basic insurance that doesn't have all these bells and whistles and all these heavy, costly mandates. Another final point I'll simply make. In addition to health IT, privacy protections, and things that are not run by the government, we also think you need to have transparency. And here is a huge difference in opinion from where the White House is going and what we're proposing. The notion of having the comparative effectiveness housed within the Department of Health and Human Services is a regulatory model whereby enlightened bureaucrats will decide how healthcare is to be delivered, how transparency will occur, how best practices will happen, and then the government, the the greatest payer now, and probably the single payer later if this plan comes effect, will make these decisions. Enlightened dictates from bureaucrats are still dictates from bureaucrats. And so that is not the path toward um, transparency. And that, in my opinion, will take these young people coming out of society, out of school, and they're going to look at this new sector and say, why would I want to be a doctor? Why would I want to have all these student loans, spend all this time in school, only to come out and basically be a de facto employee of the federal government and have them tell me how to do my job? So what I fear is if this regulatory model is put in place, it's the same kind of bureaucratic model they have in England. They call it the National Institute of Comparative Effectiveness, otherwise known as NICE. This is not the regulatory model we want to pick. We're saying let's have a market self-regulatory system. We want transparency, so let's take a look at FASB, the Federal Accounting Standards Board. It's a very similar system that we're trying to replicate here, which is that is not a government agency. It is all the stakeholders involved in, in setting accounting standards, innovating with new, new tools so that you have transparency and the market self-regulates itself. If you say you're going to use these standards and you cook the books, then the SEC will get you because you committed fraud. We're proposing the same kind of structure so that when we're measuring things, Replacing a hip, a knee, a cataract surgery, you know, bypass, the American College of Cardiology, the orthopedic surgeons, the specialists themselves will design the metrics at which we measure these things so the stakeholders themselves in a market self-regulatory structure will come up with standard metrics on price, on quality, on best practices, and the market will make the decisions within there. And if you say you're using these metrics and you cook the books then you will be committing fraud and the government, the Health Services Commission, like an SEC, will come and get you. What we're trying to say here is we want to have health innovation. We want to make sure that those heart surgeries that are invasive now become less invasive later, and we want to encourage those kinds of new breakthrough technologies to be rewarded, not controlled within a government system. That's why we want to have not bureaucrats writing these regulations, We want to have the American College of Cardiology saying, here's how we should do it this year, and here's how we should do it next year, and standardizing the metrics. The point here is this. Our plan 
starts with and revolves around the individual. We take all the money we spend right now, which is two and a half times per person than any other country on health care. The government itself will spend $5 trillion over the next 10 years on health care for people under age 65. We spend plenty of money, enough money. Take that and don't spend it through bureaucracies or through third parties, but through individuals. And give individuals power. Give them power to get affordable health insurance. Give them power in the form of money to buy that health insurance. And give them power in the form of information. Apples to apples comparisons on how best. And through that power, going through the individual, we believe you can fix this problem and everybody can have affordable health insurance, even though they might even have a pre-existing condition without new taxes, without new bureaucracies, where the nucleus of the system at the end of the day is that patient-doctor relationship, not a government bureaucracy. On September 17th, Americans will once again celebrate Constitution Day. And for the eighth year, Cato will hold its annual Constitution Day Symposium, the Supreme Court, Past and Prologue, an examination of the Court's recent decisions. Please join us on September 17th to hear a comprehensive critique of this past year at the High Court and of what we can expect during the coming year. For more information or to register, please visit cato.org slash Constitution Day. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.